All right, we need to get into our study. But we're looking at Revelation 2, beginning in verse 7. 7 caps off Jesus' message to the church of Ephesus. And then in verse 8, we move into his message to the church of Smyrna. So let's read beginning in verse 7 through 11. We'll see if we get that far. Revelation chapter 2. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. Father God, we lift up this time in your word today. We pray that you'd help us to get through as much as possible, that you would feed our spirits, feed your sheep, Lord. Teach us, help us to gain greater knowledge and understanding of all the incredible things that are being revealed to us in this book of Revelation. Bless this study, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Him who has an ear, let him hear. Well, you know, there are physical ears, and I was having trouble hearing this morning from the back exactly what Tim was saying. But there are physical ears, and then there are spiritual ears, right? And that's what Jesus is talking about here in his message to Ephesus. And he will use this phrase over and over again with these seven churches of Asia Minor. He who has an ear, let him hear. And he talks about that in Revelation chapter 1. There's a special blessing for those who read this book of Revelation, who hear it, and put the words into action, act upon them. And so Jesus distinguishes in chapter 1 between reading and hearing. Reading is not hearing. Hearing, in the way that Christ is speaking of it, means gaining understanding, spiritual insight. In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, the carnal man cannot understand spiritual things because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, apart from revelation from the Spirit of God, someone could read through the whole Bible and it wouldn't make any sense to them at all. Not because it's illogical, not because it doesn't make sense, but because their spiritual senses are dulled. Our spiritual senses are awakened when we're born again by the Spirit of God and the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. You go back and read the same passage. Maybe you read a passage of Scripture as a non-believer and you go, I don't get it. That makes no sense at all. Then you get saved. You get born again. You get filled with the Spirit of God. You go back and you read it. And you go, oh, yeah. I get any, any of you ever experienced that? That's how it works. So when Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear, he's speaking of those who have spiritual ears, whose spiritual hearing is not muted, dulled, inhibited. Now, Again, keep in mind, this message is to the church of Ephesus. And when we get to Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, 
Incredibly, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and sup with him and he with me. He's knocking on the door of the church. What does that tell you? And this comes in the section where he's talking to the church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church. And where does Jesus find himself in that church? On the outside looking in. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He who has an ear, let him hear. And so he is speaking to believers. He's speaking to the church of Ephesus. Remember, his issue was with them is that they had lost their first love. Now, not all in the church will listen, either then or now. But those who do will be blessed if they take heed to his words. To the word of God. He who has an ear, let him hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In the book of Proverbs, it says, Without a vision, the people perish. Or another translation reads, Without revelation, the people cast off restraint. The vision, the revelation, must come from God, from the Spirit of God. Let him who hear what the Spirit says to the churches. A lot of churches are hearing a lot of stuff, but it's not from the Holy Spirit. Our revelation, our vision needs to come from the Spirit of God as he opens our hearts and minds to the understanding of the truth of his word. It's not enough to just get a warm, fuzzy feeling up and down your spine. In fact, sometimes that's too much. You need revelation from the Spirit of God. God speaks to us in many ways, but no way is more reliable than when we sit down with the Word of God and we say, God, now as I take time to read your Word, to study your Word, please speak to my heart. Quicken to my heart and my mind the understanding of the truth of your Word. Sometimes you'll get a word from a fellow believer and it may be right on the money. Sometimes you'll have an inner sense of the voice of God speaking to you, but all these other sources have to be confirmed by the Word of God. If they contradict the Word of God, for example, thus saith the Lord, leave your husband and marry this other man. And I've heard stories like that. Haven't you? That doesn't line up with the Word of God, does it? So guess what? That has to go out the window. You follow me? We need revelation. We need inspiration from the Spirit of God. And the most reliable way to get that is from the Word of God. As the Holy Spirit quickens to our hearts and minds the understanding of His truth. Again, the Bible says, there's wisdom in the multitude of counselors. And so, yeah, if we're looking to godly men and women that we know and trust and we, they have set an example, a Christ-like example in the way that they live, their actions, their speech, we can seek counsel from godly believers. But again, that counsel has to match up with the Word of God. And if it doesn't, you must reject it. So here's what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a message from the Spirit of God. Notice it's plural, churches. It's not just for Ephesus. 
This is for all the seven churches of Asia Minor here in Revelation 2 and 3, and it's for our church too. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. Now, so unfortunately this implies that there perhaps might be some in the church who do not overcome. We've talked about this. The Bible speaks of a great falling away in the last days. We've talked about overcoming before the world, the flesh, the devil, overcoming the temptation to buy into false doctrines and false teachings. In Ephesians 4, Paul talks about not being tossed about by every wind of doctrine. And so many of our Christian bookstores and big box stores that sell religious books are filled with all kinds of garbage. Every wind of doctrine. Overcoming is not getting caught up in those things, not being sucked in by every new fad that sweeps into the church, every new doctrine, every new belief. To him who overcomes, and that would include, by the way, since we're talking here about the church of Ephesus, overcoming, being an overcomer, would have to include returning to your first love, remaining and abiding in the love of God. An overcomer is one who will remain and abide in the love of God. We talked about uh, in the last teaching on Ephesus the Mary and Martha believers. Martha being the one caught up in works. Mary being the one sitting at Jesus' feet. Jesus scolding Martha and applauding Mary for sitting at his feet and receiving from him. To be an overcomer is to avoid becoming a Martha someone caught up in good works to the detriment of their relationship with God. We talk about it so much, the difference between religion and relationship. And there, I had a conversation with Charlie's daughter about this, talking about the difference between religion and relationship. Religion is man's effort to reach God, which always falls short, by the way. And relationship is when Jesus is already reaching out his hand to us, his nail-scarred hand. He's reaching out. Did a song a few weeks ago that a friend of mine and I wrote back in the early 70s, Reach Out to Jesus. But Jesus made the first move. And he's reaching out that nail-scarred hand. And relationship begins to happen when you reach out and take hold of his hand. It's not religion, it's relationship. To him who overcomes, I will give. And in the NIV, we find the words, the right. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. You see, here's where a lot of people get mixed up and confused. And again, because we are Americans and our nation is built upon a bill of rights, which is now being systemically violated, by the way. And the founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, in particular said that these are unalienable rights, which means they can't be taken from us, imparted to us by God. That's the founding principle of our nation. That ultimately it's not man who imparts rights to us, but God. But you see, that's the point. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life as sinful human beings this is going to come as a big shock to some of you. 
We have no rights except those that Jesus gives us. Did you know that? And people get offended, they get tweaked, they get bent out of shape, they get triggered. You're violating my rights. Well, I would propose that as sinful human beings, we're all violating everybody's rights every day. That's the sinful human nature. The point is, the one who gives us the right to anything is Jesus Christ. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. John 1.12 As many as received him, Jesus, to them, check this out, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. People think, oh, all human beings are God's children. You know, we are the world, you know. That's not true. We are born in sin. We're not children of God until we receive Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as our Lord and Savior, and we're born again. And he gives us the right to become children of God. Here's the great thing about not having any rights. It's really hard to get offended. I have a right to this and that, and I have a right to be treated this way and the other, and respected and so forth, and so you're violating my rights. But if I yield all my rights over to God because the only rights I really have come from Him, then you can't offend me. Because I don't have any rights anyway. I'm saved by grace through faith. I don't have a right to go to heaven except that Jesus has given it to me because I put my faith in him. You see? If anything, I've told you before, don't ever ask God or demand that God give you what you deserve. You're going to come in here looking like a french fry. Don't ever demand and there's some in the faith movement that kind of do that, you know. Okay, God, this is what it says right here. You better do it. Wow. I can't imagine dealing with God in that way. There are people that do that. Here's something we have a right to, but I wouldn't want it. We have every right to go to hell. Did you know that? Because that's what we deserve. So I don't want my rights I want Jesus to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God and so this speaks of heaven and eternity to him who overcomes I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise you thought that was all lost didn't you Adam and Eve blew it got kicked out of the garden no more paradise no more tree of life see God because they had fallen into sin, God lovingly, graciously banned them from the Garden of Eden so that they might not eat from the tree of life and live forever in a fallen state. But guess what? That tree is alive and well. And there is truly a paradise of God and every believer is going there. What do you think of that? Genesis 2.9 out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, including the one that Eve got roped into eating from. 
The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, so he separates that one, distinguishes it out from the rest. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's the one that got Adam and Eve into trouble. You see, only God can handle that kind of knowledge. Now, when we see him face to face and we know him even as we are known, then we'll be able to handle it. Genesis 3.22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. They ate from that tree. And then what happened? Oh, my goodness, we're naked. We've got to cover up. Before that, they were naked and unashamed. They were the only two there. And they had no concept of nakedness, of being exposed. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, God barred them and banned them from the paradise that he had created for them. God didn't want to do that. He had to do it. Folks, the right to eat from the tree of life and live forever was forfeited when Adam and Eve sinned. But those who hear the word of God and respond will have that right restored to them. Luke 23, 43. What did Jesus tell that thief on the cross, remember? Not the bad guy, the one that mocked him, but the, the other thief that said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's faith, Right? He's hanging on the cross dying. Jesus is hanging there dying. And yet he has the faith that Jesus is going to live beyond the grave and that he could actually be taken with Jesus to wherever it is that Jesus is going. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today, because they were both going to die that day, before too long, both that thief and Jesus would be physically dead. And yet, what does Jesus tell him? And this is a tremendous comfort for every person who has a loved one that's about to pass away. But you know that loved one knows the Lord. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And the same could be said for yourself, that when you know that you know that you know that you're saved, that you're born again, that you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you don't have to doubt or wonder what's beyond the grave. Where, what's going to happen to me? Where am I going? Jesus makes it very plain and very clear. Today, the moment your spirit leaves your physical body, by the way, that's the real you, the spirit, created in the image of God. This is just a vehicle, just like your car. Your car takes you where you need to go. This body takes you where you need to go. But this body is not you. You're, the car isn't you, right? There was a TV show back in the 60s called My Mother the Car. <laughs> Boy, you guys are old. You remember that. I, and if I remember correctly, what happened, the guy's mother died, but then her spirit was in the car. Pretty crazy, but I mean, it was the 60s after all. Hard to know what those TV writers were smoking. <laughs> but you get in and out of the car, right? The car is not you. And sooner or later, the car wears out, it breaks down, you've got to get another one. Same with our bodies. This is our vehicle. Today, you will be with me in paradise. You don't even have to worry or wonder, what's going to happen to me when I die? If you're a believer, you know. 
And Paul talks about, he said, I would prefer to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. Again, very clear. What happens when your physical body gives out? Your spirit goes to be with him. And then at the proper time, the appointed time, at the resurrection of the dead, you get a brand new, immortal, imperishable, perfect, glorified body. A heavenly body. Revelation 22, 14. Right at the end of Revelation. And this is, goes hand in hand with him who overcomes. Blessed are those who do his commandments. So part of being an overcomer is walking in obedience to God. Okay? Anybody can say, yeah, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, so on and so forth. But Jesus says that the evidence of a true believer is that you obey his commands. The proof is in the pudding, as they say. Blessed are those who do his commandments, not because we're saved by doing his commandments, you see. We're not saved by good works. We can't do that because we can never be perfect. And the only way we could be saved on our own merit is to be perfect, and that's impossible. So when it talks about doing his commandments, it means that those who are truly his, those who have truly embraced Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, the Holy Bible, the virgin birth, right? The perfect sinless life of Christ here on earth, his sacrifice on the cross for the sins of the world, his resurrection from the dead three days later. Those are the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. If you don't believe those, you're not a Christian. You're so hateful. You're so bigoted. You're so mean-spirited. No, I'm just telling you the truth. If you believe those things and you've confessed your sins before God, you've repented, invited Christ to come and sit on the throne of your life, then you're a believer. Blessed are those who do his commandments because those who do his commandments are true believers. Are we perfect? No. Do we make mistakes? Yes. Do we still sin? Yes. Unfortunately, we still sin. Not because we want to, but because we are still battling between the flesh and the spirit. It'll be a lifelong battle till we see Jesus face to face. The difference is a lifestyle. Do you live a lifestyle of attempting, struggling, striving to follow Christ? And this is another part of my conversation yesterday with Charlie's daughter. We were talking about, she's uh, currently a part of a Mennonite community in Pennsylvania. And I was asking her questions. I wanted to learn more about the Mennonites. I've always been impressed by them. They seem like a great group of people. I've always admired their discipline, lifestyle. But we got into a conversation about the particular church she's involved with had fallen over into legalism. They'd taken it too far. And she's praying about what she needs to do. And we were talking about various churches and their doctrines, their beliefs. And she said, one thing I don't believe in, I don't... We were talking about... What are your options, you know, what Baptist church, what have you, Calvary Chapel? She says, I don't believe in once saved, always saved. And we both agreed, nobody can snatch you out of the Father's hands. God will never, ever take away your salvation, but there is clear-cut evidence both in the Scriptures and from the real world that there are people who have indeed walked away from God. What's the answer? 
Pastor Chuck Smith would say, we are eternally secure in Christ. You stay with Jesus, you have nothing to worry. I've never met a backslider in my life that was peaceful and content and confident. Have you? I've never met anyone we would call a backslider, someone who had been following God, walking with Christ, and then turned away. I've never met, ever met a backslider who says, ah, I'm fine, I'll be okay. But there is a problem there in that that once saved, always saved doctrine causes people to have that mentality. All I have to do to be saved is pray a sinner's prayer, and then I can go on and do whatever I want. That's not what the Bible teaches, folks. So that, that is another one of the many doctrines that's crept into the church that's done great harm, leading people to believe all you have to do is pray that prayer, you're good to go, and then maybe you have to take communion, maybe go to confession, you see? That's not how it works, folks. The overcomer is the one who does his commandments. Not because doing those commandments saves you, doing those commandments is the evidence that you truly belong to him. The good news is when we fall short, and we definitely will fall short, God's grace, his love, his mercy is there to restore us into right relationship. I have every intention and every desire of obeying God each and every day of my life. But I know full well there's going to be times when I don't. Not because I want to, not because I think, oh, I'm going to just go disobey God. No, because we are weak. We haven't been perfected yet. We're working on it, right? It's a lifelong pursuit which will not be completed till we see him face to face. So folks, what we see here, blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right, there's another right bestowed upon us by God. Hey, get out of my way. Let me in here. Where's that tree? You don't know who I am, Peter, do you? I'm going to get some of that tree. Well, no. <laughs> wait a minute. Wait a minute. Has Jesus given you the right to eat from that tree? Or are you just trying to barge your way in through the pearly gates? It doesn't work like that. The tree of life, folks, oh, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. The New Jerusalem. The tree of life will be present in the New Jerusalem and all those who hear what the Spirit says to the churches and individuals will be given the right by Jesus himself to eat from that tree and live forever in the presence of God. Now, I don't profess to understand everything about this. It's a bit of a mystery. You mean once we get to heaven, if we want to continue to live, we've got to eat, keep eating from the tree? Maybe. I don't quite understand how that works. But the point is, unless Jesus has bestowed upon you the right to enter into the gate of the city and to eat from the tree, it's not going to happen. And it won't happen by your good works. It'll happen by your love for God and the fact that you've embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior. So Ephesus, another name for Ephesus it's the church that's lost its first love, but it's also known as the backslidden church, which is interesting because Christ had commended them for all their good works, 
But you see, the backslidden church is not the one that has stopped doing good. There are many what you would call socially minded churches doing a lot of good things in their communities. But the backslidden church is the one that has stopped loving God and each other. And so their works would be considered dead works. Well, we've got time to start with Smyrna at least. I don't think we'll get all the way through. So we pick it up in verse 8. Wow, so far we covered one verse. What do you think of that? And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Again, this angel of the church, there's been some dispute between different Bible scholars. Is this referring to the pastor of that church or is this a guardian angel? But to the angel of the church, because the word angel means messenger. It could be an angelic messenger, a human messenger. At any rate, I am confident that the message from Jesus gets through to these churches. So to the angel of the church of Smyrna. Smyrna means myrrh. We all know what myrrh is. It's a spice associated with suffering. Jesus was given myrrh at his birth and his death. Myrrh was used in the anointing of the tabernacle and embalming dead bodies. Smyrna was like Ephesus, a seaport, and located about 35 miles north of Ephesus. So all these seven churches are located, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, in what is now modern-day Turkey. Today, Smyrna is called Izmir, Turkey. And unlike Ephesus, which is now in ruin, Izmir is a bustling city of about 200,000 people. And interestingly, even though Turkey is now officially an Islamic nation, about one-third of the residents of Izmir are professing Christians. In the time of John, the beloved who wrote the book of Revelation, it was the center of the imperial cult of Rome. In other words, emperor worship. Very interesting. It was one of the centers of emperor worship. Smyrna had great wealth and beauty. They had a, a stadium, a library, the largest public theater in all of Asia Minor. They had pagan temples for Sybil, also known as Diana, Zeus, Apollo, Asclepius, and Aphrodite. Talk about a, you know, just a smorgasbord of false gods and temples. Ignatius, you may have heard of him, one of the early church fathers, on his way to martyrdom in Rome, wrote to Polycarp around A.D. 108, who was then the bishop of Smyrna. Tertullian and Irenaeus, who talked with Polycarp during his youth, tell us that Polycarp was considered bishop of Smyrna by the apostle John. Or consecrated, I should say, not considered. He was consecrated or anointed bishop by the apostle John, the one who wrote this book of Revelation. And according to church history, Polycarp's martyrdom was characteristic of the suffering of the church during that period. Therefore, Smyrna is representative of the suffering or persecuted church. So Ephesus was the church that lost its first love. Smyrna is the persecuted church or the suffering church. Again, in the immediate context, but then each of these seven churches represents certain segments of the church down through human history. For Smyrna, it's persecution or suffering. And out of the seven churches, only Smyrna and Philadelphia 
They're the only two of the seven that are not rebuked by Jesus in some way. And so, again, most of us would prefer to avoid suffering, and yet this persecuted church of Smyrna, in God's eyes, was one of the strongest of all these seven churches. These things, says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. This is restated from chapter 1. Jesus identifying himself as the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Words of comfort for the persecuted church. That Jesus was dead and came to life. And so even if their persecution were to result in martyrdom, they could look to forward to eternal life in Christ. Revelation 1.17, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. It all begins and ends with me, Jesus. Don't be afraid. I've got everything under control. Revelation 1.18, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. So a reminder that all those who die in Christ will live with him forever. So he begins his words to this church of Smyrna with encouragement because they are under intense persecution. He says, I know your works, tribulation and poverty. Also translated, I know your afflictions and your poverty. So they were apparently being physically abused for their faith and their financial condition was extremely bad because of their stand for Christ. And that's been another characteristic down through the ages of those who have taken a firm public stand for Christ. Sometimes it results in a loss of livelihood. People are fired from their jobs. People are demoted rather than promoted because a strong believer in the workplace can be a thorn in the flesh. And so that's why some people don't take a stand for Christ because they have a greater fear of men than they do of God. He says, I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. And this is a reminder to us, folks. We all need to be reminded from time to time. And in the book of James, James gets into this too. Those who are poor in the things of this world are rich in the things of the Spirit. Even the poorest believer is rich in the things that really matter. We have a great challenge. We live in a world today that is just consumed with materialism and greed. And what's crazy about it, I've had the opportunity to visit multiple third world countries. We were down, we were in the Amazon, okay? Went down on a mission trip. We went to Ecuador to an uh, a, uh, orphanage there. And uh, my cousin, who was pastoring Calvary Chapel Scottsdale at the time, we went with him and his church. Several of us, Chris and Maria Rivera, went. And uh, we, they took us down to the Amazon for an Amazonian experience. It didn't turn out too good for me. I got really sick because I drank some weird stuff. They had this demonstration and they were mixing up some weird deal in a coconut shell or something, you know. And Apparently, everybody was supposed to pretend to drink it but not really drink it. I drank it. And I spent the next 24 hours deadly ill. We're riding back in the bus over the uh, mountains from the Amazon back over to Quito, Ecuador. My head's in my wife's lap the whole time. 
That night they had a big going away party, and I love parties. I was in bed, baby. I missed it all. So here we are in the Amazon, and we're walking through this little village, and they're just like little, you know, shacks. And you look in, and everyone's got a color TV. I'm serious. This is a native Amazonian tribe, and they've all got color TVs in their little shops and shacks and stuff, and they're all walking around with cell phones in the Amazon. Do you believe that? And so when I say, you know, we're, we live in a world today consumed by materialism and greed, even the poor people have color TVs and cell phones. But you are rich, Jesus says. The things that really matter, and the things that really matter. Sadly, so many have taken the gospel of Christ and they've downgraded it to this like prosperity thing. They're like, if you really have faith, you can be prosperous, you can be rich, you can be wealthy, you can have a big house, you can drive a Mercedes. And that is so degrading to the riches that we have in Christ. The riches we have in Christ are eternal, folks. They're not temporary. How can you attach the eternal God, the creator of all things, the master of the universe, to houses and cars and cell phones and color TVs? That's really wrong. Now, it's, it's a blessing to have these things, and I don't think God minds that we have them. But the reminder is here, these people in Smyrna... They're going through tribulation. They're in true poverty. But, and you might say, well, man, how mean-spirited of John to tell them, oh, you're rich. Really? I don't even have enough food to, to make dinner? And you're telling me I'm rich? I don't believe that was their reaction, though, or their response. They understood exactly what John was saying. Rich in forgiveness, salvation, eternal life, joy, peace, and righteousness in the Holy Ghost. Those are the riches of God. No one can take those away from you. Now, as I said, some of these churches, dead churches, but they're still active socially, social justice warriors, if you will. And maybe they're feeding the poor and they're helping the homeless and so forth. But you know what? If they're not giving them Jesus Christ, then it's all for nothing. Because you could die with a full belly and go to hell, or you can die from starvation and go to heaven. I'll take heaven every time. I'm not saying we shouldn't do good works. Obviously, we should. We should help the poor. We should help the homeless. All these things. But if, they're not, if these works are not done, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, I can do all these things, and if I have not love, it's a bunch of noise. Agape love, unconditional love, is the catalyst. It should be the foundation of everything we do. And that's why Jesus called Ephesus to return to their first love because all their good works were going to come to naught unless they return to their first love. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. What's he talking about? The unconverted Jews that lived in Smyrna, and this happened to Paul, by the way, everywhere he went. He would go first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. He felt an obligation to his own people to take them the gospel first. And almost without exception, they rejected him. 
And he wound up getting stoned and beaten and all kinds of things. So here in Smyrna, there's a synagogue. They're not converted Jews, completed Jews. They're not Christian Jews. And they gave false witness against the believers there, though they did profess to worship the same God as the Christians, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so Jesus says that they are speaking blasphemy by identifying themselves as believers. They're actually a synagogue of Satan. And if you look at the Gospels, you can see where this comes from. Jesus is dealing here with the Pharisees. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. And then down in verse 44, you are of your father the devil. So Jesus is calling these religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the ones who are supposed to be the spiritual leaders in Israel. He says, you're of your father the devil. So it's that same synagogue of Satan that he's referring to here in Revelation chapter 2. You're of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. Remember how I said earlier, we aren't just magically automatically born into this world as children of God. And here these men are supposed to be the spiritual leaders of Israel. And Jesus says, you are sons of the devil. The synagogue of Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning. And I've told you so many times, it's so clear, it's so easy to see who's on God's side and who's on Satan's side. God is pro-life. Satan is pro-death. Hello? I don't care what the reason is. Anybody who wants to kill an unborn baby or somebody of a different color, doesn't matter what it is. If you're pro-death, you're of the devil. If you're pro-life, you're of God. Now, we're not talking about having to go to war and fight for your country and all that. That's a whole different subject. But just on a day-to-day -day basis, going through life, God is pro-life, we should be pro-life. When he speaks a lie, Satan, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. And as we close this morning, let's stand. And I'll point out to you, there's a graphic message and a graphic illustration here in this last section that we are wrapping up with this morning. The greatest persecution of Christians has almost always come from those professing to be deeply religious. And I said this several years ago when we were still having church in the other building that the coming persecution will be spearheaded and led by those in the liberal church. Mark my words. Mark my words. It wasn't the tax collectors and sinners that crucified Jesus, okay? It wasn't them who rejected him, mocked him, cursed him. It was the religious leaders. And so there's a good chance, folks, that we are facing sometime in the not-too-distant future a much greater degree of persecution here in America than we've ever experienced before. And with God's grace, 
we will be able to handle whatever comes our way. Do you know that? I hear people talk about being afraid, being worried. Oh, my goodness. What if they put us in camps, you know? It sounds far-fetched, but everything we're seeing right now sounded far-fetched at one time, didn't it? We're seeing things we would have never thought we would see. And believe me, I'm not hoping for it. I don't want to be persecuted. But when I read the scriptures, I find, again, what was one of the only two churches that Christ had no rebuke for? The persecuted church. So, but just be encouraged with this. Have you ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs? I highly recommend it. It tracks the persecution of the church down through hundreds of years in the way that God came in like a flood and comforted and ministered to those who were under severe persecution. The Bible says where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Do you believe God's got enough grace to take care of you? To protect you? He does. So... We may be soon entering into a Smyrna-like situation. That's why we need to stick together, right? Paul said, don't forsake the gathering together of the saints all the more as you see the day, big D, approaching. Do you see the day approaching? I do. The day of the Lord, the return of Christ, it's approaching. But as I told you a couple of weeks ago, it has to get worse before it gets better. If you want to see Jesus, there's a song by a, a country... Uh, let's see, a bluegrass gospel group. Uh, I forget the name of the group. It's a family group. And they do a song, Everybody Wants to Go to Heaven, But Nobody Wants to Die. It's a good song. So if we want paradise, which we are in possession of already as believers, but before we get there, Jesus' exaltation at the right hand of the Father the pathway to that exaltation was through the cross. Okay? And Jesus said we have to deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow him. Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. If you're dead and you have no rights, then nobody can do anything to you. Get it? Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. It's amazing. It's incredible. It is our spiritual food. It is our daily bread. It is our sustenance. And we ask you to help us to remain faithful to the truth of your word, not to be tossed about by every wind of doctrine. Lord, just keep us strong. Keep us right in the palm of your hand. And Lord, help us to never wander or stray. But if we do, that you would, just like the good shepherd that you are, Lord, you said you'd leave the 99 and go out and find the one lost sheep. Lord, we hope and pray that we are never that lost sheep, but if we are, we know that you will be faithful to come and get us and bring us back. And we pray if there's even one lost sheep here today, that you would bring them back, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself. If there's anyone that is not a believer or is not in right relationship with God, that even now that they would reach out to you and rekindle that relationship, Father, that they would light the fire again. We thank you and we praise you for your love, your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness. And we thank you for the precious gift of eternal life through Christ our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.